Hi everyone and welcome to the sixth episode of our webinar series Kashmiri Beyond Conflict. Um, the series has been running throughout the month of October every Thursday and Saturday at 5pm Britain summer time where we delve into the complexities of community identity with our esteemed guests. To receive notifications and updates regarding the series, please follow our social media platforms and or register on our Eventbrite page and search for Kashmiri Beyond Conflict. Today we will be in conversation with Dr. Naila Ali Khan. Um, Naila was born in New Delhi, India. Her family is based in Jammu and Kashmir, India, and she was raised there in the Kashmir Valley, located in the foothills of the Himalayas. She is a visiting professor at Rose State College, and she is the author of four books, including *The Fiction of Nationality in an Era of Transnationalism* and *Islam, Women, and Violence in Kashmir Between Indian and Pakistan*. And within that book, um, it interspersed oral histories from women who served to defend Kashmir from invasion, women who had previously been long ignored. In May 2015, Nyla was the first Kashmiri woman to be nominated and accepted as a member of the Advisory Council of the Oklahoma Commission on the State of Women. Khan's latest book, Sheikh Muhammad Abdullah's Reflections on Kashmir, is a compendium of the speeches and interviews of Sheikh Muhammad Abdullah, who reigned as Prime Minister of the State of Jammu and Kashmir from 1948 to 1953, and who was a large presence in the political landscape of India for 50 years. So, Naila, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank um, you. And the first question that I would like to pose to you that we've sort of asked all of our guests on this series and a deliberately open question is, um, to you personally, what does it mean to be Kashmiri? So it's nice to meet you. I was raised in Kashmir in the 1970s and the 1980s. And I've always had a very strong sense of place. And I've, very, uh, and I've always had a very strong sense of culture as well. So um, in the 1970s, Kashmir was more pluralistic and more inclusive than it is today. Uh, I was born and raised in a Muslim family, uh, relatively traditional, very well educated, uh, and I went to a Catholic school. So I had all these influences in my life which enabled me to create an inclusive hybrid identity. And although, as I said, my parents were relatively traditional and I was given a religious education at home, my parents were never afraid that the Irish nuns at the Catholic school that I went to would make any attempts to convert me to Christianity. So being Kashmiri meant being secure. And we looked at the rest of the world from a position of strength, from a position of power. I had a strong sense of our unique literatures, of our unique regional identity. I had a strong sense of my religious identity as well. And again, the kind of Islam that I was raised in was not monolithic, but it recognized the heterogeneity 
of interpretations within Islamic schools of thought. And being Kashmiri also meant, as a girl back in the 70s, being politically and culturally empowered. So I recognize that although I was surrounded by a cultural discourse that was conventional, I was surrounded by traditions, but those traditions would never bog me down. On the contrary, they would enable me to lead an emancipated, enlightened life. And I knew that I would always be empowered while recognizing my responsibility to my community. And Kashmiri society back in the day was very close-knit. So I had a sense of being well-protected because it was such a close-knit society. And, uh, you know, the kinship ties were very strong. So we looked out for one another, which again enhanced my sense of security back then. And how do you feel like that sort of changed now then? And how do you feel as a Kashmiri now? So you see, personally, as a Kashmiri, um, I still have a very strong sense of cultural identity, and I have a strong sense of regional identity as well, because mm -hmm. I belong to the generation that was fortunate to see a holistic culture before the resurgence of uh, the separatist movement, so armed, ins armed insurgency and counterinsurgency. So my generation saw a very well-integrated socio-cultural identity, right? Mm -hmm. And I still have that sense of security. But over the past 30 years, there is no denying that Kashmiri identity has been eroded, the cultural fabric has been ripped to pieces, the social fabric, has been ripped apart as well, particularly after August 5th, 2019. There has been a much, much greater sense of demoralization. And also, um, young people of your generation now feel like they live in a dystopia. You see, people of my generation felt like we lived in a utopia. We had this very romanticized notion of Kashmir and Kashmiri identity. But for people of your generation, there is really very little hope. There is a lot of despair, despondency, and also, Neelam, what comes with the ripping apart of the sociocultural fabric is a weakened sense of morality a weakened sense of traditions and customs. You see, people of all ideologies require traditions. People of all ideologies require a, co a collective sense of belonging, a collective sense of identity, collective memories. But those have been greatly weakened over the past 
three decades. Yeah, and for um, viewers who aren't aware, the 15th of and kind of building on that as well, how do you feel like um, the establishment of food makes a difference as to how you relate to the um, both in the region and also in the Neil, your, your voice is not very clear. I, I didn't hear that question. Sorry, yeah. So I was saying, how do you feel that the borders make a difference as to how you relate to other Kashmiris, um, both within the region and also within the diaspora as well? So, so um, again, over the past, I Kashmiris have seen in Jammu and Kashmir is a greater sense of polarization, right? The three parts of Jammu and Kashmir, Jammu, the valley where I was raised, and Ladakh, over the years feel, you know, there's been a much greater sense of regional separateness. So religious polarization, regional polarization, as well as ethnic polarization, is much greater now. And of course, the part of our state that is in Pakistan, the part of the state that you were originally from, I have always advocated that we need to rebuild our historic linkages, as well as cultural linkages, with that part of our state as well. But because of the, the, the resurgence of ultra-right-wing nationalisms in South Asia, in the subcontinent, borders now deeply entrenched. And for a while, travel between the part of Kashmir that I was raised in, Tom, became relatively easy. For a while, we got and we're opening up and we're becoming porous, enabling cultural exchange, enabling more people-to-people -people contact, which I think was healthy. But now, a lot, again, with this very, um, you know, with this ugly rhetoric and with this rhetoric of hate and bigotry, those borders have again been reinforced making it difficult to facilitate people-to-people -people contact, making it difficult for people from our part of the state to reestablish historic linkages with people from your part of the state. Uh, so, and currently, as you and members of your audience know as well, India is being ruled by a political party that has built its entire political identity on the ideology of Hindutva, which is an ideology that divides, it polarizes, it's an ideology that is built on the demonization of particular religious and ethnic groups. That's what they thrive on. So that has made, I think, the, the animosity 
even worse between the various parts of Jammu and Kashmir, currently in India. Yeah, I think that's really interesting yeah, as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting um, as well. Um, especially from uh, my perspective as well, so I wasn't even aware of what was going on in the Indian side of Kashmir for so long because of what you're saying, the disconnect between both of the regions as well. Um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you something else, Elam, to add to that. Um, because of the way Kash Kashmir Valley was mm -hmm. isolated after August 5th, 2019, there, ha there have been no platforms at all to forge constructive dialogue with other parts of Jammu and Kashmir. And that includes the part in Pakistan as well, right? The discourse that dominates the situation right now is militaristic. There is no attempt to talk about uh, creating common ground between the various parts of Jammu and Kashmir as well as the various parts of the state that are in Pakistan. There is no attempt to build consensus. There is no attempt to talk about political accommodation between the various parts of the state. And I think the isolation of the Kashmir Valley, cutting that part off from the rest of the world, in the day and age of globalization, in the day and age of the internet, made the task much easier for the BJP, right, to allow militaristic discourse to burgeon, to allow the discourse of bigotry and hate to burgeon. And I guess something and else, I guess something else a lot of your, your research has been focused more on very women and their place within and identity within this conflict. And a lot of the times we have written about Kashmiri women themselves. Um, it's always about sort of the big male figures in Kashmir. So it'd also be interesting to, to hear more about that as well. Yeah. So, you know, over the past 30 years, women in Kashmir have borne the brunt of the conflict. The past 30 years, because of, um, well, because of, of the brutality because of the brutalization of the society. You know, several male heads of households have been arrested. Several have been killed. Several have been taken to locations that their family members know nothing about. There are, as you know, lacks of half-widows in Kashmir. The other term for half-widows would be grass-widows. So women who have been separated from their husbands for ages, their husbands were, you know, not all of them were implicated in crimes. Some of them were simply suspected of being affiliated with militant organizations. And because of suspicion, were picked up and taken to, uh, I was, you know, taken to places where they were interrogated, brutally interrogated right, prisons. There are still thousands of Kashmiris who are locked up in jails and prisons 
outside Jammu and Kashmir, in other parts of the country. And because their families are not very well-to-do, they lack the wherewithal to travel. They're not able to travel to jails in other parts of the country to visit their loved ones. So women really have borne the brunt of the conflict. And also with militarization comes sexual abuse. Now in Kashmiri society, it is very difficult to talk about sexual abuse because of the innate conservatism of that society. You see? So such things get swept under the rug. Domestic abuse, for instance, child abuse, sexual abuse within families, sexual abuse that military personnel have been responsible for, sexual abuse that militants have been responsible for. All, you know, a lot of the time it's difficult for women to be open about such things. It's difficult for families to seek justice because they just don't want to have to face that reality. And also we have seen changing gender identities over the past 30 years. So households that have lost their male breadwinners, in such households, women have had to assume that task of taking care of the rest of the family, of putting bread on the table, you know? So we've seen those shifting gender roles as well. Um, now, in my book, Islam, Women and Violence in Kashmir, I chose to look at the political empowerment of Kashmiri women that came about in the 1930s and the 1940s. So when people look at Kashmir through the prism of the current conflict, they see women as victims, right? They see women as rape victims, or they see them as war widows, or they see them as half widows, or they see them as despondent, they see them as Mothers of martyrs. Those are the pigeonholes into which Kashmiri women have been put. So I wanted to look into how women had actually been politically empowered in terms of being given the right to vote, in terms of having a voice in mainstream and subaltern political movements, in terms of running for legislative assembly and Indian parliament, and also in terms of being members of the Women's Self-Defense Corps. And the Women's Self-Defense Corps, back in 1947, 1948, played a huge role in reviving the cultural identity of Kashmiris played a huge role in initiating adult literacy classes. And it's important to talk about such things. Now, when we go back to the 1930s and we talk about the strong movement that Kashmiris created against monarchy, it was not just a male movement. It was a movement in which women stood and fought shoulder to shoulder with their male counterparts. 
and not just women of elite and well-educated families, but women at the grassroots level as well. Rural women. So in the 1930s, the movement that rattled the cages of the Dobra monarchy was cross, um, well, it, well it, it, it went across class divides. And it went across cultural divides as well. And again, the movement in 1947, the Women's Self-Defense Corps, the resurgence of our cultural identity, the rebuilding of our social fabric, women across class divides were involved in that movement. So I thought it was important to delve into those very significant roles that women had played. Right? Women were not circumscribed by a monolithic cultural discourse. Women were not circumscribed by political authoritarianism. But, and as you know, and probably your viewers know as well, Jammu and Kashmir was one of the first places in what was then called the Indian subcontinent, now the politically correct term is South Asia. So Jammu and Kashmir was one of the first places to have its own constitution a constitution that was very well drafted, that borrowed from the American constitution, that gave rights to not just male state subjects, but to women state subjects as well. Women that other parts, rights that women in other parts of South Asia still don't have. So the constitution of Jammu and Kashmir, which was revoked by the federal government of India on 5th August 2019, that constitution gave the right of free education up to the university level to not just male state subjects, but to women state subjects as well, which the constitution of India still doesn't give to its citizens. So we have these very uh, emancipatory documents. We have these very liberatory documents. And the rights of women, their children, uh, adult franchise that included women as well, that existed in Kashmir in the 1940s. So I'm very proud to come from a place that did, not, um, that did not subjugate women politically. You see, culturally, Neelam, I think all of us still have a long way to go when it comes to women's empowerment. All of us. And I'm talking not just about developing societies, but developed societies as well. So you see, in Oklahoma, as a member of the Oklahoma Commission on the Status of Women, I'm very aware of the high rate of domestic abuse, domestic violence in the United States of America. I'm very aware of how much of an epidemic human trafficking is. And victims of human trafficking are women as well as men. 
right? But predominantly women. So we still have a long way to go when it comes to cultural empowerment. But political rights were given to Kashmiri women a long time ago. And again, as I said, society recognized the heterogeneity of traditions. We recognize the heterogeneity of interpretations of Islam, of the four schools of thought. So it wasn't just one way of looking at things or one way of living, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's really yeah, interesting. That's really interesting. Well, I didn't know as well the contributions and things like that. And obviously that was from looking in that specific um, period of time. How do you feel like that from that sort of analysis you done in the 40s and 30s? How do you think that's translated to now a sort of modern day Kashmiri woman in the region and how that's affected her and like her identity as well? Yeah, so um, as I said, I think all of us have a long way to go when it comes to culturally empowering women. Yeah. So, and culture, I would like to emphasize, cannot be conflated with religion. The reason I'm pointing this out is because I have colleagues in the West who do research on societies, Muslim societies in India, Muslim societies in Pakistan. And when they study cultural traditions and customs, they conflate them with Islam. And they assume that Islam sanctions regressive traditions, right? So I think, so I think that kind of um, observation needs to be questioned. And we need to remind such scholars that there is a line of demarcation between culture and tradition. So some of the regressive cultural traditions that we see in South Asia, in both India and Pakistan, in Kashmir, some of those are pre-Islamic, right? And they've been perpetuated over the years. And I'm sure you will find some examples in your part of Jammu and Kashmir yeah. as well of such regressive customs that predate Islam, right? Yeah. So then, yeah, yeah. Like, go ahead. Growing up as well, there was a lot of sort of things that you, you grow up believing are part of Islam, but then later you're like, oh no, that was just our culture that we're made to believe that. Yes. One so, yeah, really so some of those customs and traditions exist in our part of Jammu and Kashmir as well. Um, and I think even today, the onus of making a marriage work lies on the woman. You know, so even today, if someone has marital problems or if someone has a roller coaster marriage, the blame is placed on a woman, and the onus is on her to make it work. Yeah. The onus lies on the woman to pass cultural traditions from one generation to the next. So I think even today, 
the woman is viewed as the repository of culture and tradition. And it is her job to make sure that that tradition is passed down to her progeny. And you know, Neelam, I've noticed that in such situations, women are placed on a pedestal that you are the ones to teach your children about tradition and culture. They're placed on a pedestal that yeah. also their ambitions, their unique ambitions and their unique aspirations get relegated to the background. And I see that happening even today. So on the one hand, placing women on a pedestal glorifies them, iconicizes them, but that glorification can be restricting. Yeah, 100%. Sort of just limiting them to fit that specific Does world. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I've, I've felt that a lot as well. It's been Absolutely. Because in that case, being too educated and a woman being too educated in South Asia is seen as a very negative thing as well. Making sure that the family the woman belongs to retains its good name as well. You see? So victims of domestic violence are always willing to speak up. Trauma is brushed under the rug. Today, in the 21st century, though the rate of is relatively high, I just think we're having some connection issues. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So even though in the 21st century, the, the rate of female literacy is relatively high, and it's always been relatively high. That's something else I would like to point out compared to other states in India, you know, and the rate of female professionalization is relatively high as well. But I think the most problematic thing that I see today is an attempt to homogenize the Kashmiri woman. Right. So an attempt to relegate diversity in Kashmiri society and culture to the background. All of us have identities that are mediated through our unique histories through our class identities, through our 
level location, you know, whether we belong to urban areas or rural areas, how we relate to conflict within our own culture. Again, culture is not seamless. History is not seamless. Culture is dynamic, and it should be dynamic. It should be a site of dialogue, conflict, resolution, right? Not static. So, I, you know, I see that very problematic attempt to homogenize the Kashmiri woman, that every Kashmiri woman should think a certain way and look a certain way and conform to a particular ideology. I think there was a lot more I think there was a lot more diversity while I was growing up in the 1970s and the 1980s than I see today in recent times is what you say and I think you know the rise of right-wing movements globally mm. that rise has impacted Kashmir as well yeah um that's really interesting as well. And I think um, building up on that as well, how, I guess more on a personal level now, how do you feel like um, the conflict itself has shaped your identity? That's a very good question. So, um, you know, Neelam, the conflict has strengthened my sense of place, definitely. I have a much stronger sense of place. I have a much stronger sense of responsibility of maintaining my cultural identity. And through my writings and through my academic work, I have been able to interrogate various political discourses that have ruled the roost in Kashmir for a long time. So I think I'm a lot more resistant to any attempt to stereotype me as a Kashmiri Muslim woman. I'm a lot more resistant to any attempt to place me within a pigeonhole as a Kashmiri Muslim woman. And I recognize that all of us, need to have a sense of cultural traditions. You know, this is where people on the left go wrong. People on the left assume that culture is always about dominance. Well, it's not. Culture is not always about power and dominance. All of us need codes. All of us need a collective sense of belonging. So I think the conflict has given me a greater sense of belonging. And also, as I said, you know, resistance to homogenization. So that way, yeah. And we'll talk more about this as we go on. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And also, um, what aspects of Kashmiri culture do you feel like you most identify with or held on to the most over the years as well? I think the aspects of Kashmiri culture that I most identify with is strong kinship ties. So every time I go to Kashmir, and I go there every year, sometimes twice a year, 
Um, I have, you know, my, my morale is always bolstered by the moral support that I see all around me. And this very strong sense of linguistic identity. We are one people. We belong to a certain region. Uh, I belong to large families. My mother has a large family. My father, who passed away a few months ago, had a very large family as well, and very old family with, with deep roots in Kashmiri society. You know? So that's the aspect that I most relate to. And another aspect that I most relate to is the emancipatory Islam that was practiced in Kashmir while I was growing up. So my father and the rest of his family have always been devotees of uh, Shah Hamdan, Sayyid Mir Ali Hamadani who was the Iraqi scholar who disseminated Islam in Kashmir. So I've always had that sense that Islam is about inclusion, that Islam is about pluralism. Islam in Kashmir was not spread by the sword, but it was spread by dialogue. It was spread by enlightened discourse. And that's another aspect that I most relate to. I've always been very proud of my identity as a Kashmiri Muslim woman. Because being a Kashmiri Muslim woman for me has never meant confinement. It's never meant being restricted. It's never meant having to remain behind closed doors. But it has meant having a voice a political voice, being culturally empowered, having rights of inheritance, the right to express my opinion. So that's what it's always meant for me. That was great. That was really inspiring. Thank you so much for all of your insights. Are there any final words or comments you'd like to make? Well, it was a pleasure meeting you, and I'm delighted that I was interviewed by someone from the part of Jammu and Kashmir that is in Pakistan. And I hope we can go on. Um, the people in Kashmir of every region, of every province, I hope we can go on to build common ground. I hope all of us can facilitate consensus building exercises and dialogue as well and i hope we are able to build on our commonality while relegating our differences to the background and i hope that your generation at least and every succeeding generation after that lives in harmony and prosperity for every single Thank you so much for joining us and giving us your incredible insights. And Thanks. also thank you to our audience for watching. Um, our next episode will be on Thursday at the same time, where we will be in conversation with politician Mr. Shokas Ali Kashmiri. 
Thank you again from Identity International.